You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. This episode is dropping one week before Election Day, and with tens of millions of Americans having already cast their ballots through mail-in voting or early voting, we know that this election is not a week away. This election is upon us. And there's many issues at stake in this upcoming election, and the Jewish vote and the Jewish voter is not monolithic. Over the past many weeks, we've spent each episode digging deep into what our ethics and values say about these issues. We've talked about healthcare, and we've talked about immigration. We've talked about gun violence. We've talked about LGBTQ rights. We've talked about voting rights. We've talked about so many issues. And for this final episode of this limited series, I want to bring on uh, my friend, my teacher, one of the many prophetic rabbinic voices in the American Jewish community today to talk with us about what role politics play in Jewish communal life and what role politics play in Torah. I'm excited to have with us today, Rabbi Sharon Brous. Rabbi Brous is founder and senior rabbi of Ikar in Los Angeles, was listed by the Daily Beast as the number one most influential rabbi in America, and has been listed many times by uh, the Forward as one of the 50 most influential American Jews in our country. Hey, Sharon. Hi, Jesse. It's so good to be with you. Thanks for being with us. Um, there's this schism in the Jewish community, um, and I don't want to single out our colleagues, but I think especially within rabbinic leadership, um, maybe more so within the conservative rabbinic community, the, those in the rabbinical assembly, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true, um, about those who struggle with keeping politics out of the pulpit, if you will, and those who believe that politics very much belong within our synagogues, within our Jewish communities. Mm-hmm. I want to turn it over to you to ask your thoughts on where you think, what role politics play in Jewish communal life. So there certainly is a difference of opinion of how these conversations should be handled in our communal spaces. I'm not certain that there's such a great ideological schism, but there is a practical schism. Um, I think that some rabbis in our uh, uh, colleagues, friends, err on the side of, I don't want to disrupt the community. Um, I am called to be a pastor and I need to be able to be present with my community. And I don't want to take the risk of sharing a view that might be alienating to people in my community, including donors and, and board members and other leaders who might feel uncomfortable with the ideas that I put forward and then feel alienated from my rabbinic leadership and from the synagogue community. And then there are other colleagues who say that Torah and Judaism and our tradition call us to be moral leaders. And sometimes moral leaders are called to stand in the breach and to say things that might be uncomfortable, that might be unpopular, that might not make us friends, um, but, but actually are necessary if we are to take Torah seriously and take our Jewish tradition seriously, that we are called to build a more just and loving society. 
and that you simply cannot remain silent in the face of grave challenges to the, to the rights and dignities, particularly of the most vulnerable people. And, and so that, and that schism, I believe, does exist. So even the, even the rabbis who I hear saying, keep politics out of the pulpit, I don't, many of them don't disagree on the merits. They're not happy to see kids separated from their parents. They're not happy to know that millions of Americans are, are terrified that they'll be struck with illness because they know they cannot afford the, the medical bills and will be bankrupted because of, our, because, of, because of the way that we handle healthcare in this country. But they're not, they don't believe that their job is to push and challenge their community to contemplate what Judaism demands of us when we are living in a society that is so, that, that's just plagued by profound injustices. You know, I wonder if part of the problem is we're not able to differentiate between politics and being partisan because so many issues in our society have by default become partisan because we live in such a divided society. You know, I noticed this in the most recent debates that um, Vice President Biden was talking a rhetoric of uh, we're all Americans and there's no such thing as red states and blue states. And President Trump was very much about, well, we don't support bailouts for blue Democrat cities. Those, those, that's where, um, COVID is on the rise and they've failed and why should the government paid for failed democratic mayors or, or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, and there is this amplified nature of red states and blue states. Um, so much so that when we see uh, lines out the door for hours on end of early voting for traditionally quote unquote red states, and we say, oh, there's going to be a, a blue tidal wave. Or when we see thousands and thousands of people at a rally for President Trump uh, at a traditionally blue state, we say, oh, what, what's going on in this place without realizing actually that there isn't such thing as blue states and red states, that we have neighbors, all of our communities that uh, may feel differently than us and vote differently than us, but it's easier to ignore them because we like to stay in our bubbles, be that via social media or news or Jewish community or otherwise. Uh, we've sort of created this partisan nature where any issue that we stand for, uh, the other side has to stand against it. And, and so there are issues, at least in my mind, that we should all agree on, right? For, we could disagree on immigration policy, but we should all agree on human dignity, right? We, 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 should, we could disagree on um, what how to limit mass shootings and gun violence, but we should all be able to agree that we need to prevent children from walking into school and murdering their classmates. But these are totally partisan issues. So even when we talk about politics, and that's what we say in our synagogue, that we will never be partisan, but we will always be political. Um, we can't help but when we are political, become partisan because of the issues that we're talking about and the stances that we're taking. Well, look, I mean, it, I think that for many years, it was very possible to be political, but not partisan. Um, for many years, there, were, there would have been two candidates on that stage in the final debate, and they would differ on policy issues. And some people would think that the better way to address the healthcare crisis was the way one candidate A held, and some would say it's the way candidate B held. 
What we have now is that the Republican Party literally put forward a platform in the 2020 RNC that had no policy positions, but only stated its support for President Trump's agenda. So it's there's no the 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 goalposts have shifted so dramatically that now there's one party that says it believes in science and one party that supports climate denial. There's one party that is looking for solutions to address systemic racism. And there's one party that's entire platform is to stand behind a president who talks about shithole countries, who calls Mexicans rapists and murderers. And even in the final debate, um, ju just, just reiterated some of those concerns. Only the worst people are coming and only the dumbest people will respond to the law among those immigrants. And so it's very challenging now to, to thread the needle in the same way. Even still, I don't believe that it's the job of a clergy member to ever stand before the community and say, this is the person you should vote for, or you must vote blue because this is where our values are. But instead to do exactly what you're describing, which is to talk about what the core values are. If we believe that part of human dignity is the ability to love and to be loved and for that love to be recognized by the society that you live in and not to be legally discriminated against because of that love, that's a core value. And people will determine on the basis of that core value how they'll vote. And it's very clear that one of our parties right now has really cast its lot on protecting the rights of those who, who believe that they deserve to love and be loved. And one of the parties is working to, uh, to take away those rights. And so that I, I believe that our job as rabbis is to help do a kind of values clarification for our community members, to help lift up our core sacred narrative and uh, narratives and our history so that people understand exactly what's at stake and, and who we're called to be when the world is in crisis. I think our job is to help remind people of how profoundly important, essential democracy and democratic institutions are to our well-being and to the well-being of especially the most vulnerable minority communities in any population. And I don't need to tell people if I support one candidate or the other, which one to support in my role as a pastor and in my role on the pulpit. That's, they don't need that for me. And that's not frankly my job. It would be a distraction. So um, I don't think that the, that the traditional distinction between uh, politics, but being political and being partisan is so applicable anymore. And that's one of the dangers of this time. And that's part of the reason why it's so polarizing. The rhetoric of the last five years now, including the campaign leading up to 2016, but the rhetoric of the last five years has been, you're either with me or you're evil. And that rhetoric has been so profoundly problematic that what we've ended up with now is essentially a culture war. And, and my most fervent prayer is that it doesn't turn into an actual civil war which many of us are imagining it, it, it could actually transpire in the course of the coming months. Because, there's, because we now are living in a reality in which the president and the administration have put forward a, a my way is the only way mentality. And that is so profoundly dangerous for us. So that, that, that has unfortunately changed the shape of what American politics looks like I think for at least a generation or maybe more. What does that mean for the Jewish community? Um, 
you founded ECAR in 2004? Yes. And um, ECAR is, is really a celebrated Jewish community um, that you were able to help mold and shape what you wanted to be. Uh, and it's a community for uh, seen as a sort of come as you are um, and uh, progressive Jews, which is very much of the LA Jewish community in general, but progressive Jews who really um, find Torah uh, in spiritual moments and find spiritual moments in the streets as well. Um, what about those Jewish communities that are not startups, that are not part of the Jewish Emergent Network, um, where by default, because of the part of the country they're in or because uh, they're, they're not a startup Jewish community, you're going to have um, 50 people agree, 50% of the people agree this way and 50% people uh, percent of the, the population agree uh, another way. Um, how would you encourage Jewish communal leaders to, because I think it's easy to, or okay to disrupt and disturb and upset a small percentage of your congregants and force them to really reckon with what their beliefs are and what Torah says. I think it's much harder for anybody to, to do so when half of their congregation may disagree with them entirely and then, and then are forced to ask, well, do we really want this person to be our rabbi? Yeah, I'm not suggesting on any level that this is easy. And Jesse, you're absolutely right. When you build a community from scratch, you get to shape the culture of the community. And at the outset, we articulated who we were. And for the last 17 years, we've been working the muscle of lifting up human dignity first and foremost. And that's the language in the community. Not everybody agrees all the time. We have really vocal critics. We talk. We would, back in the days when we used to have Shabbat lunch together, every Shabbos after. God services, willing, that will, that will happen again soon. God willing. I mean, we would sit and sometimes argue for hours about, um, about these most, most critical issues, but our community is well-practiced and well-versed to understand that Torah, for Torah to be a living document, for Torah to be a source of eternal wisdom, that means that we are called to grapple with what is the message that is being sent to me when I read the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, when I hear the story that has been preserved for thousands of years, that a band of slaves who are, who are degraded, who are humiliated, who are murdered, who are beaten for hundreds of years is invited to walk in partnership with God toward a life of dignity. And that once they become free, the first thing that they learn is that they are not ever to oppress another the way that they were oppressed, and that they are called to build societies in which no other person is oppressed the way that they were oppressed. How do you hold that very basic essential truth from our Torah at the heart of your religious tradition? Say it, refer to it three times a day it, when you pray. Say it when you hold up your Kiddush cup uh, going into Shabbat on Friday night constantly refer back to it in all of our holidays, dive deeply into it on Passover every year, and then not translate that core message into the society that we're living in today, right. which is struggling with tyranny in many of the same ways that our ancestors struggled with tyranny in that story. So, so I think what's happening now is the, the question to us is, do we hold Torah at the center, or in the moment when Torah's message matters most, do we mute Torah and pretend that our job is to keep everybody happy, to not lose any donors, 
and to sing songs that will make people feel spiritually uplifted and, and, and feel like they're part of a call for unity. When the rights and dignities of the most vulnerable people in front of our faces are being challenged and threatened every single day. We learned this week that 545 children who were deliberately torn from their parents' arms in a strategy to deter other asylum seekers and refugees from finding their way into our country in an act of incredibly gross cruelty, that they will likely never be reunited with their parents. I I'm a parent. I, I can't even imagine, like it is the most, it hurts my body to even say these words. That was a deliberate policy of an administration that acted in our names as Americans. How can we not talk about the gross injustice that, is, that was committed in our names? And how can we not talk about what our obligation is to build a society in which such things should never happen to anyone? Or do we only speak out? Do we only take to the streets? Do we only petition the government when it's Jewish lives on the line, when it's Jewish communal freedoms and dignities that we feel are being impinged upon? That's not the Judaism that I know. And so my, my sense is I don't, I don't enter this space because this is a comfortable space or a popular space because this is going to be an easy space. We enter this conversation because it is absolutely a moral imperative. Because if we don't do this work, then we are abandoning our tradition in precisely the moment that our tradition matters the most, when human lives and human dignity are literally on the line every single day. There was a study that came out a couple of years ago. I don't think it's a Pew study, I'm blanking where it came from, uh, but it was talking about millennials, how millennials are, uh, not just in the Jewish community, but across the board, millennials in America are more skeptical of organized religion than boomers, but identify as much more spiritual than boomers. And I find that really fascinating is because the yearning for God and being God's messengers and walking in God's ways is very real. But when I, I think you're absolutely right, when we're walking to a synagogue and we're told you're going to study Torah and you're going to chant Torah and you're going to be called to the Torah, but you're not going to ever think about how Torah plays out in our daily lives. We have to yeah. keep those in separate parts of our brain then we're asked, well, what's the point of Torah at all? You know, what does it mean that Torah is Eitz Chaim He? It's only a tree of life if we truly cling to that Torah. I think that's exactly right. And I have, I have no, I don't believe that this is some contemporary radical feminist interpretation of Torah. This is, to my mind, the Pshat read of our tradition. And I don't even know how to understand our tradition's obsession with Yitzhak Mitzrayim, with, the, with this meta-narrative of our people and the way that it appears in our liturgy and the way that it's repeated throughout the Torah 36 times or more, depending on who's counting, right? I don't know how to understand that any other way. It's absolutely explicit in the text. And I don't know how to understand Shabbat other than to say, six days a week, you engage in the work of the world. You work to transform your reality. And then you take a day for God, a day to breathe, and a day to dream. And one of my most important teachers over these years has been Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. 
And I'm so influenced by the way that he writes and thinks about the power of Shabbat, about what it means to, to, to be a, a living embodiment of a tradition that's, that insists first and foremost that all human beings created in the image of God live with human dignity and to hold that as your core belief, but then live in a world that makes a mockery of that core belief. How do you, how do you persist in, in such a reality, in such a split consciousness? And the answer is for six days, you do everything you can to change the world. And on the seventh day, you dream again of what's possible. And, and that to me is our most important work in this really critical time. We are not called to be passive and, and to passively observe while a fascistic, fascistic, bigoted, criminal administration takes over the country through the denial of rights and dignities of the precisely the most vulnerable people. And we're supposed to stand on the sideline and, and sing Kumbaya, Ose Shalom. You know, can't we all just get along? That is not what our Torah and what our tradition demand of us. Preach. I am worried about November 3rd, but I, I, I'm, I'm worried about November 3rd partially because none of us saw what four years would, would look like. We ended up turning our space, our sanctuary, Two days later, on November 5th, uh, we gave our space over to local organizations to North Jersey Pride, the, the largest um, LGBTQ plus uh, pride organization in our area, to Planned Parenthood, to the Community Coalition on Race, to all these organizations, just to, to talk about fear of what the future would bring. And in many ways, we have seen that become reality. Um, and, and I'm worried about November 3rd, but you know, in some ways I'm, I'm more worried about November 4th and November 5th and November 6th and every day until uh, January 20th, uh, even if November 3rd ends out the way uh, I believe it, it should based on my idea of Torah. And I wonder what to do with that, that community that is so divided, including the Jewish community and, and, and some of our colleagues' communities. Um, how do we reconcile that division after an election day, knowing that there's no such thing as, as an election day anymore, right? I, I see some people who are, were on stage, whatever that means in this virtual environment on the DNC and the RNC. And I was like, oh, they are making a speech because they are running in four years. Or, you know, somebody, I was listening to uh, the 538 podcast, which I listen to regularly, and they have a prediction that AOC is going to run for president in 2032. And they're, they're calling it right now. And she's, she's clearing a path for that. Um, there's no such thing as an election year anymore. There's no such thing as a presidential election year that every moment is political. And so how do we reconcile after these deeply divided moments? Uh, I don't know if that idea of amachadim levachad, right, that we are one people, one nation, one heart, was ever true. I, I don't know if it was true when we left the wilderness uh, and, and wandered, when we left Egypt and wandered in the wilderness, I don't think it was true when we entered the promised land, but it's certainly not true now. I don't know if we will ever get back to that point. I don't know either. I do agree with you that the work that will need to be done is only just beginning now. And even, even if all of the foreign interference and domestic interference in this election, including vast 
and, and very deliberate attempts at voter suppression and all kinds of other tactics. Jesse, I don't know if you heard this, but in Baldwin Hills, which is a black neighborhood very close to my neighborhood here in Los Angeles, someone put burning newspaper inside a ballot box a couple days ago and, and um, burnt down the ballot box. This did not happen by accident. And the fact that it was in a black neighborhood and not at the Jewish community center in the white neighborhood a few miles away is, uh, is not accidental, right? We have no idea what's going to transpire in the coming couple of weeks. And I agree with you that as concerned as I am about November 3rd, November 4th is a far greater concern because what's happened is that, th that at the heart of our nation, even before its founding, is the most toxic form of hatred, which is white supremacy. And, and our country has been built on it. And we never reconciled to it. I'm very struck by what Brian Stevenson teaches us about how the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war, because the narrative of white supremacy persisted, which is what killed Reconstruction and led to Jim Crow and the era of lynchings and racial, racial terror, which is, what, which is what limited the impact of the civil rights movement and led in turn to the next chapter of mass incarceration. Because that mentality of um, uh, that, that, that Southern, that, that, that mentality of the South in the Civil War, the mentality of white supremacy persisted. And what we've seen over the last five years is that though that mentality persisted, it was forced to be undercover. And now it's lifted up in broad daylight and celebrated. A and we've seen again and again that literally the President of the United States cannot condemn those who wave the banner of that mentality. And, and this is, these have been banner years for white nationalists. We know that, they tell us that. They say we never in our wildest dreams imagined that we would be so embraced from the highest offices. So now that we have a surfacing of the cancer that's been at the heart of the nation from before its founding, all of a sudden, if, if, the, if that president is out of power and there's a new president who's decent, and who's fair and who's struggling for a more just America comes into power, we still have all of this hatred that's now living above ground. And what we want is not just to shove it underground again so that we can wait for another demagogue to emerge in another decade or two. But what we need to do is actually eradicate that hatred from the core. And I believe that what that's going to require is creating a new shared narrative for America not a Northern narrative or a Southern narrative, but a, a, a narrative of a new America. And there are a lot of people, a lot of activists and, and clergy and thinkers who are striving right now to actually write that story for America, because something's going to have to happen in which we realize that if we don't live together, we're gonna to die together, and that we can no longer pretend that this is not at the heart of what America is and always has been, and that there's enough good here among the people of this country and among the core driving values of, of the overwhelming majority of most of the people of this country to fight for it. And so I believe that what we're going to see in the days ahead, and God, I really, I, I don't wanna be alarmist and I hope I'm wrong. I pray that there's not violence in, in the next couple of weeks. Um, I mean, real physical violence in the streets. We are, as you know, um, an incredibly heavily armed country, probably I, I imagine the most heavily armed country in the world. There are many more than 300 million guns in the hands of 
um, of civilians, people who live in this country, and in the midst of a culture war that's incredibly dangerous. And it strikes me that, that the only thing that we're going to be able to do to move forward is write a new story that takes all of the rage and all of the trauma and all of the grief that leads people into these racist ideologies as safe haven, which is what they've really become for many people over the last few years, and instead invites them to be part of something different, something better, something that will help us all move toward healing, something that, that really is a true multiracial democracy. That's not something that we've, that we've lived in before. We have not seen America as a true multiracial democracy, and it's time, and, and we're not going to heal until we open our hearts to that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm struck by thinking about every movement for civil rights, for human rights um, in our country's history. And I don't want to make a generalization, um, but it feels like they are led by people of faith. And these movements are rooted, uh, whether it's, it's rabbis or, or pastors, um, clergy of any sorts, that it's rooted in scripture, even if it's not the scripture of my own tradition. And I'm really struck by that idea when we were talking about um, the, the relationship between politics and Torah, how every faith, right? And that's where I think we're united. We, we spend so much time being divided by our faith traditions, but what ultimately unites all of our faith traditions is the fight that, that to build a world, to be God's partners that in creation, that the world that God set out to create was actually an incomplete world. I don't buy this idea of tikkun olam that our job is to repair the world because that suggests that world, the world was once whole and is now broken. The world was never whole. The world has been incomplete since God created it. And uh, if we're God's partners, we're not fixing what God did, but we're trying to finish what God initially set out to do. Mm. Beautiful. I, I really resonate to that. And, and it, feels, it, it feels so profound. Um, you know, the Torah is an unfinished project. The story ends before the people enter the land. Um, and I think America is a great unfinished project. And, and so we have, to, we have to write the next chapter together. Um, I'm very struck by that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I also think about the prophetic Torah that you teach. Um, and in some ways, this is not to discount the power of either of our words, but being the rabbi of the community you're in, being the rabbi of the community that I'm in, which I acknowledge is a progressive community, um, allows us to teach that Torah. I think, you know, the civil rights movement and we hold up um, Abraham Joshua Heschel, we hold up Joachim Prince, who was the rabbi of a congregation just a mile down the road from where I am now. And it was in some ways easy to be a rabbi in Newark and go to the March on Washington. It was easy to be a rabbi in New York City and go down to the South to march with Freedom Riders. And you have stories of Seymour Atlas, who was the rabbi of the Orthodox Synagogue in Montgomery. And when on the high holidays, he spoke about the bus boycott, his board fired him afterwards. And going back to our, the beginning of our conversation about what I fear was the silence of so many in the Jewish community 40 years ago, to speak out about what would happen, what we're living through four years later, how easy it is for some of us to speak out. And I acknowledge how challenging it is for some of our colleagues to speak out. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I want to empower them um, to do so, knowing how challenging it must be and knowing how scary it must be to share Torah with people who disagree with us, uh, communities who vehemently think that we are wrong, knowing that Torah is subjective, right? I can only teach the Torah that I believe. I, I can't teach somebody else's Torah. And, and I acknowledge that somebody else may disagree with my Torah, but knowing that Torah is subjective, I want to hold them up, especially in the coming days leading up to this election to uh, teach the Torah of their hearts, the Torah that they believe people need to hear most. Um, not the Torah that is convenient, not the Torah that they think uh, will get them another contract, uh, but the Torah that um, is, ensures that it truly is a tree of life that we can cling to going forward. Look, I, the only thing that I differ with you on is I don't think it's easy. Uh, I don't think it's easy for you. I don't think it's easy for me. It's easier um, for sure. But I mean, to really put forward a, a message of, of justice, of equity, of love amidst a culture of injustice, of, of gross inequality and cruelty and callousness is not easy. And it, it, might, be e it, it might be easier in the sense that my board has my back and they're very clear with me that they want me to speak my mind, even if they don't agree with me. And many people do not have that backing from their boards. Um, but I don't think it's easy. I'm, I think all of us are in this space right now where we actually have to ask, what am I called to do with whatever platform I have that could help turn the tide toward a society that is more just and more loving? with whatever power I have, with whatever platform I have, what can I do in this moment of competing crises to help make this world more fair, more just, and more loving? And, and, and we all have different abilities and different um, resources and different skills and, and, and different space to do that. And I don't believe that my sermons could be delivered in another shoal without me getting fired necessarily, probably it would be much harder for communities, for me to give those sermons and for those sermons to be received. They aren't, but as you say, they're not called to give my sermons. I, I, I wonder sometimes about these senators. I think about senators who I never agreed with, but used to have a conscience, who used to stand up and, and speak in such a way that I believed that they knew what was right and wrong. And over the course of the last few years have completely obliterated any sense of right and wrong and have just become party over country people. And I wonder why are they doing it? And in my most Don Lecafskut moments, I think, well, because they believe that in order to do the work that they really need to do for their constituents, they have to stay in power. And the only way to stay in power is to appease the king. So they're gonna do what they need to do so that they can ultimately do the same good work. And I very clearly believe that that is a, a morally bankrupt analysis, that, it, you, that you must assess and assert if you're a senator and in that position of power, who am I called to be in this moment to build a more just and loving society? And that might mean that I'm gonna lose my job. 
but history will look well upon those who lose their jobs for fighting for what's just and right. And history will not look well upon those who have a long and fruitful career working for working on the wrong side of history. And if that's clear for senators, is that not also clear for clergy? Is our job to keep our job? Or is our job to speak a Torah that will lead to a more just and loving world? Even if that might risk our job. And you're right. That is incredibly challenging and difficult for people who live in a 50-50 congregation where they're going to be alienating themselves from literally half of the community. Either way. Either way, right? And that's why I believe that this is a muscle, that this is a resistance muscle, that I told you we've been preaching this Torah for 17 years, not for five years, not for four years, but we've been working the muscle of putting forward a Torah of human dignity for 17 years. And the community was trained to know you might disagree even passionately, but we respect that our rabbi is called to share what she believes Torah demands of us in times of crisis. And so in this moment, I would not expect colleagues who live in Montgomery, Alabama, and are presiding over an Orthodox congregation to, to stand up and, and, and suddenly say, you need to vote this way because this person is a tyrant and a criminal and a fascist. A, I wouldn't even put that message forward. But, but it, when, you're, when your muscles aren't worked out and then all of a sudden you're trying to run a marathon, you can't survive. What we have to do is we have to build the strength. And hopefully we've been doing it. We have to build the strength and the credibility to speak this Torah in, a, in an incredible way so that our congregants know and understand where our hearts are and can hear us say that on the ballot are our core values. And this is what our Torah teaches us are our core values. And it does translate into the world that we're living in today. This is not some kind of vague, abstract idea. This is about how do you build a society that's rooted in justice? And when you look at our society today, what can every single one of us do in order to ensure that we are working toward a more just and loving world? And to link it back to election day just a week away is that um, this is our opportunity every four years, every single year to have a say in how we can build that society. Um, and back in the day when we would still go into the voting booth uh, in an actual polling place and actually pull levers or press buttons, uh, which is certainly not how we're doing in New Jersey this year, um, I used to associate that voting booth with the Kodesh Kodashim, right? And we just read as part of the Avodah service where the high priest would only, would, would go into the Holy of Holies by themselves uh, once a year, and they would be the only one in that. And it was only them in that space that they could see God and realize that they were doing this holiest of acts. And that's how I picture voting, that nobody gets to interfere with this act. Nobody gets to interrupt us. Nobody gets to see what we're doing. It's just us and God in that space and doing our small part, which is really a large part, but it feels small in the moment, to shape that more just society and I recognize that it's not easy for so many of us, that there are hurdles and barriers that have been put in place for so many of us to do that work. But if we look at it that way, that we are partnering with God and the act of voting is just one small way to show that we're God's partners in building that just society, 
that it goes a long way. Beautiful. Amen. Amen. Thank you to Rabbi Sharon Brous for sharing your Torah with us today. As always, you can follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at J-M-O-L-I-T-Z-K-Y. You can follow Rabbi Sharon Brous on Twitter at S-H-A-R-O-N-B-R-O-U-S. Till next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And don't forget to vote because that is the way that you make sure that the Torah that we preach and the Torah that we teach, the Torah that we live by is a Torah that exudes all that we do and all that we are and is a Torah that shapes the society that we hope to build.